Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you all this morning. Um, Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, I thank you for this day that you have made. And I thank you for the body that's gathered here today to worship you. God, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would teach us. God, that you would soften hearts, that you would give us ears to listen with, that you would make us submissive to your word, and that you would be glorified in everything that is done this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So it's a privilege for me to be up here this morning, and uh, it was... At the end of April was the first time I had the opportunity to speak here. And at the beginning, I introduced myself and my family a little bit. And I talked about Kim and I talked about Piper. And after, a couple of the youth said, what about Noah? Because I didn't say anything about him. So um, this morning, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about our family. And you'll get to meet them all as we go through this. When Kim and I met at Moody and we were engaged, um, we talked a lot about our future and the things that we wanted and the dreams that we had, and we knew we wanted to have children, and, uh, and we also were really interested in adoption. And we thought, you know, down the road after we have children, we might want to do that. So we get married and we had three wonderful boys. Um, they really are a delight, and I'm very proud of them. And, uh, and then uh, after they're starting to grow up, we started thinking about this adoption thing some more. And God really laid it on our hearts. And uh, we began this process to adopt. And we went through some different avenues and uh, we hit roadblocks and roadblocks. And through some friends, we found out that maybe we should um, start by being foster parents And we went through the process of being licensed for that. And uh, in the middle of December of 2015, we got a phone call that there was this baby in uh, the hospital in Covenant in Saginaw. And she was um, an extreme preemie. She was born at 24 weeks. She had been there for five months and uh, had been on a ventilator and uh, things didn't look good for five months. And finally, her um, condition was beginning to turn around. And they had begun to think, this little girl has never been in a home before and she needs somewhere to go. And, uh, and that's why they called us. And uh, we decided that we, would, that we would do this. So the first picture here is, uh, who are those kids with the baby? Um, this is when we first met Jada in the NICU in Covenant. And she had some medical needs. You can see she's on oxygen. Um, I don't know if you can see from that picture, you will and the others. She had an NG tube, a tube that was in her nose, down into her stomach, and all her feedings went through that. Um, Because she had spent so much time intubated, she could not eat orally. And uh, we met her, and she's still in the hospital, so I would go in the morning or early in the day and, uh, and I would hold her and the, the nurses would teach how to care for her. And then later in the day, Kim would go to the hospital and, and spend a lot more time holding her and, and trying to feed her and singing to her. And, um, 
And after a while, um, she started to get better very, very quickly. And at the end of December, they said, she's ready to go to your home. And we had this whirlwind of activity to get things ready to bring her home because there were medical appliances and things that we needed. And um, at the beginning of January of 2015, we brought her home with us. So the next picture is Noah. Um, Here's me recognizing Noah for the youth. Uh, And he's holding her. And uh, Noah had this special care for her. He was... He was so caring and hands-on in, in everything that she needed for her care. And I think that that's a primary reason why Noah wants to go and become a nurse after he graduates high school this year. That's his desire and his dream. And the next picture will be one with Caleb. Um, this was shortly after we brought her home. And she had oxygen at home. And she still had the feeding tube in her stomach. Um, and we were taking care of her. But... In the months to come, she would grow and she would improve and, and she became healthier and stronger to so where she didn't need the oxygen anymore. And, and the next picture shows us um, at a football game with Isaiah. And you can see the smile on her face, how excited she was to be at football games. She loved the lights and the sounds and the marching band. And I think Isaiah there is pretty excited too. And... Uh, The next picture shows um, me just holding her after church one Sunday, and and I would pray for her, and I would tell her that she's loved, and that I would always keep her safe, and I would always protect her. Then her first birthday rolls around, and we took a trip to Canada. This is actually on Canada Day. If you didn't know, I am Canadian, um, but I'm a U.S. citizen now. And, uh, and this is her first birthday, and you can see how good and healthy and how typical she looks in this picture. And she was enjoying life, getting stronger and on track to be a, a healthy, growing baby. And uh, the next picture is just another one of us with her at a football game, um, enjoying the sights. We went to a lot of football games back then. And then this last picture is just her and her exorciser and and she would dance and laugh and, and jiggle around and move. And, and it was great. And in October of uh, 2015, she had to have a surgery. She had to have her tonsils removed and some granulomas removed. And after that surgery, she ended up getting a post-op, inf- post-op infection, was in the hospital um, at Covenant. And on October 31st, in the middle of the night, um, she threw a mu- mucus plug and she stopped breathing. And her heart stopped. And they took 15 minutes to get an airway secured. And her heart had stopped for 30 minutes. And it finally started beating again, but it was very grim. And they flew her to the University of Michigan, to Mott's Children's Hospital. And we drove down and... and uh, met with the doctors and went through all these scenarios. And we learned how severe her brain injury was because of that. And we had to come to the grips with the reality that she was never going to um, smile like that again. She was never going to be able to look at us. She was never going to walk. And we loved her and we cared for her as our own. But it was an incredible struggle 
during that time. And I relate with the psalmist in Psalm 10 who cries out, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Two questions that the psalmist asks that are incredibly real, very raw. And in the introduction to the psalm with those two two questions, you see a faith that is in question. These are the words of frustration about a God who seems to be distant and who seems to be hidden. These are real feelings that the psalmist feels. These are real feelings that you and I feel when tragedy happens. When you face the prospect of losing a spouse or of going through a difficult marriage, when you face strained relationships with those you love, with your children, making decisions that, that aren't the best things that you've hoped for them. These are the feelings that we have when we struggle at work, when they look at downsizing or changing or just getting harder because of the reality of the workforce today. And sometimes it's even worse than that. Sometimes it's even more painful. Sometimes it's that some, someone evil is hurting you or the ones you love. And we ask, where is God? Why is he hiding? Why is he allowing this to happen? How long is it going to take for him to act? The psalmist asks, why are you so far away? God, I need you now. I need you to be seen. God, what on earth are you waiting for? You need to know this morning that you're not the only ones in history who've ever asked those questions. The outline of this passage is really simple and straightforward. It uh, follows a poetic structure here. It's in, it has this A, B, C, B, A format. We're introduced to the faith in question. Then we're going to look at the rule of the wicked. You're going to see the psalmist offer a prayer for deliverance. Then it's going to shift to a focus on the rule of God. And you're going to see the psalmist's faith restored. So all of this frustration, all of this sadness, all of this questioning of faith is for good reason. And it's because of the rule of the wicked. In verses 2 through 11, the psalmist presents his complaint or lament about the wicked. Because they think they can pursue the afflicted, the helpless, and the poor. And God won't do anything about it. Listen to verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight for all his foes. 
he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. It's as if they see that God is being absent in all of this and the, uh, the evil, the ones doing harm, don't even try to hide what they're doing. And there's two charges in verse 2 that are presented against them. And it's that they have pride and tyranny. These evil actors are full of pride and, 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 and haughtiness. And this leads to a tyranny. In verse 3, it describes how they have this contempt for God. It goes on to describe how they have no fear of the possibility of God judging them. They think they're acting with impunity. The evil ones here are Satan's sidekicks. Their wickedness is without end. Their conscience is seared. They think that they're going to get away with it. Bad things happen in this world and and we think and it looks like God isn't acting, like God isn't doing something. And maybe it's unjust people hurting you or maybe it's just the nature of this fallen world that evil happens, that evil is real. Sin abounds. Is God hiding during this? Does God hear Will he act? In the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dantes is the main character, and he's the newly named captain of a shipping vessel, and he ends up unjustly imprisoned. And he's accused of a conspiracy and a murder that he did not commit. He's been set up by his first maid and a, and a corrupt public prosecutor. And he's sent to prison. And upon entering the prison, he's welcomed by this evil warden with a beating. With a severe beating. And the warden makes this snide remark about the justice of God. And Dante, trying to be positive, says, God is everywhere. And the warden responds to him and says, I'll tell you what. You call on God and if he comes, I'll stop. And the warden says, God is never in France this time of year. And after years of imprisonment, Dante loses his faith. And in his despair, he concludes that there is no God. And this is the danger that the psalmist is feeling. 
And this is the danger that we can find ourselves in when it seems like God is hiding, when it looks like the wicked are right, when it seems as though God is not going to bring them to account for anything that we do. And we wonder, maybe God is somewhere else. Maybe he's too busy with other things to take care of this problem. And we look at the situation and wonder if God is helpless to act. But then we transition to the third point here. And the psalmist offers up this prayer for deliverance. And he lays out this emotional plea to God as he prays. Verses 12 to 15. He says, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call them to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. The psalmist begins by saying, God, please do something. Arise, O Lord. The psalmist has had enough of this evil situation and he's tired of trembling in the trenches and he calls out to a God that he knows is able to act. He knows that God's will is done in heaven and he wants God's will to be done on earth. And he recognizes a fact here and it's this, the psalmist is powerless to change anything. But God is not. The strength to conquer lies with God alone. And he says, God, lift up your hand and remember us. And at this moment, you see the psalmist's faith begin to break through. He's starting to look past the problem and see that maybe there is a solution. Maybe there is a way out if he can be patient. He knows that God is the helper of the fatherless. He knows that God does see what's going on. That God is not distant. Do you understand that today? Do you know what God's character is? Do you know what he has done? There's this important thing of of developing spiritual disciplines. Church, When things are going well, we need to make sure that we are in the word, connected to believers, listening to the preaching of his word, practicing holiness, being in prayer, meditating on scriptures, listening to the Holy Spirit. And we develop those disciplines so that when the hard times come, those disciplines are there and we can still do them. It's like the athlete who practices and I did some reading this week, just a little bit on, 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 on how athletes practice and how a basketball player shoots hours and hours of free throw with instructions so that he can develop muscle memory so that everything he does is just instinctive in how he moves so that he can make that basket. 
And that's how we need to look at practicing spiritual disciplines. It is so ingrained in our lives that we know what to do and how to do it. So that when something tries to knock us on our feet, that spiritual muscle memory is there and can work in our lives. So while the psalmist is, his faith is being activated and it's beginning to turn, he still has this moment of selfishness and he makes this violent request of God. In verse 15, he says, God, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer and call his wickedness to account till you find none. This is an interesting thing about the Psalms. This is an imprecation, and there are some Psalms that are full of them, and they're called imprecatory Psalms. Psalm 109 has several of them. Psalm 137 has an imprecation. Psalm 65. I want to read from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. It says, Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Psalm 143 is this psalm of of great beauty, but it ends with these really violent words in verse 12. It says, and in your steadfast love, you will cut off your enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of your soul. So the psalmist here in Psalm 10 verse 15 says, God, break their arm. He tells God exactly how he feels. So now there's the question, is this a prayer to be modeled? Do we flip through the Psalms and read these things and to begin to pray them? What the psalmist is doing here is asking God to do what he wants and not what God's will is. The Old Testament is full of passages that talk about loving your enemies, about not seeking revenge or bearing a grudge. Exodus 23, verses 4 to 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you laying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it. You shall rescue it with him. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased, and turn away his anger from him. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, when we're focused on the rule of the wicked, our prayers for deliverance tend to be selfish, wrongheaded, and sometimes even sinful. And sometimes we think that we know more than God. And in this prayer for deliverance, we start to see the psalmist's faith is stirring. We start to see that he's moving in the right direction. But he still needs to take his focus off of the rule of the wicked and look to the rule of God. 
Verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish at his hand. With this one verse, the psalmist's faith is rebounding entirely. And he knows that the Lord reigns regardless of what man does. Regardless of what situations bring, God is in control. And he alludes to the fact that the nations are fighting fruitlessly against God. Because God will outlast them all. See, the Jewish view here, the, the, the view of the Jewish reader reading this psalm, when they hear the Lord is king forever and ever, they're thinking Messiah. They're thinking of the promised king who will come and rule over Israel forever and will, will defeat all of the enemies and will sit on the throne. This is the king who is forever. You need to understand what that means for them because they have seen kingdoms rise and fall and rise and fall all around them. How many civilizations have risen up and fallen? The nation of Israel itself between Judah and Israel had 43 or 44, depending on how you count them, kings. But this king will be forever. If you don't like the way a nation's being run right now, just wait. It's going to change. You don't like the 45th president? Look, there's a 46th president. You don't like how this country's being run, how that country's being run? It's going to change. But it's not just this view that the Jews had. There's, there's another side of the cross view. There's the fact that Jesus came. and He lived a perfect life. And died a death that satisfied God's wrath. And he rose again. And as believers we have this salvation. This incredible gift of God's grace given to us. That can never be taken away. Because our Lord is king forever and ever. And to some of you that is incredible hope. That is comfort. But maybe for others, it's not really. Maybe you have more questions. Maybe you don't understand it. I remember as a teen, I, I did not grow up in a church home. I went to a VBS when I was little. I don't remember exactly when. I went to a church a couple times. I remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den and be brave. But as a teenager, I started going to a church and I would hear about sin and about love and salvation and the cross. And, and it was all so very confusing. And it didn't make sense. And I remember hearing for the first time this one song. Most of you probably know it. It is well with my soul. It's a great hymn of the faith. And there's a line in it. It says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. That made me scratch my head. Because to me bliss. You think about bliss. Our daughter Piper went to camp a few weeks ago. Fireflies and frogs. Bliss. To see how excited she was. 
I was out p- picking blueberries at the end of July and it was so hot and gross and I wanted to quit. And this cool breeze came and refreshed me and that was bliss. To see our brother Dave Shoemaker up here start talking about his grandson. You look at his face, that's bliss. But my sin, that doesn't make sense. I never wanted to consider my sin. Partly because I wasn't sure that God was real. Or maybe I didn't want to believe God was real because then I didn't have to consider my sin. And I wrestled through this. Is there a God? What does it mean? And, and I finally came to this realization that, that there has to be a God. Has to. If there's not, this is just a waste of time. Life is meaningless and pointless. And what does he require of me? And that's when I began to consider my sin. The fact that I had lied and I had cheated and, and I was a thief And that at every turn I rebelled against God. And then I began to understand God's grace. Then I understood why Jesus died on the cross. Then I understood what salvation meant. And then I understood the line in that hymn that says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Look at what he's done. We've been encouraged to read through a chapter of Ephesians every day as, as, as we've been going through this series in Ephesians. And I just glanced through there. And I look at what he's done. In him we've been chosen before the foundation of the world. In him we have redemption through his blood. In him we have an inheritance. In him we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. You get into chapter 2 and you see that in him you are being built together as a dwelling place of God. I remember being introduced to this list first composed by Neil Anderson. You might be familiar with it. It's who I am in Christ. And we look what God has done here. And in him, I am a child of God. I am a friend of Jesus. I have been justified. Because of what he's done, I've been united with the Lord. I have been bought with a price and I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I've been chosen by God and adopted as his child. I've been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. The Bible says I am complete in Christ. Look what he has done. The Bible describes how I have direct access to the throne of God through Christ. That I am free from condemnation. That I am assured that God works for good in all circumstances. That because the Lord is king forever and ever, I am free from condemnation and I cannot be separated from the love of God. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am confident that God will complete a good work that he started in me. I am a citizen of heaven. 
In him I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound mind. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. That's what he's done. That's Jesus. That's my Savior, the Lord, who is king forever and ever. And regardless of the circumstances, he is still king. And regardless of the evil actions of those around me, the Lord is king forever and ever. And regardless of who wins elections, guess what? He's still king. And regardless of what your household budget looks like, he is the king. Nothing has and nothing ever will change that. So we take courage because the Lord is king forever and ever. And now with a proper perspective, focused on the rule of God instead of the rule of the wicked, the psalmist comes full circle and his faith that was in question is now restored. Verses 17 to 18. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your heart to do justice to the fatherless and oppressed. So the man who is on earth may strike terror no more. See, the Lord hears and he encourages And he will act. And it may not be the time frame that he wants. It may not be how we understand that it should be. But he will act. For he makes things right. So where is God when times are bad? When things are bad and the temptation is to give up? When maybe you're on the verge of losing your faith. The truth is that dark times do not diminish the reality of God's presence. He is with us. Remember that. He is with you. He may seem far away, but he is close. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Remember that it's your identity in Christ that defines you. It's not the circumstances around you that make you. It's not the evil ones that are hurting you, that define you. It is God with us. So we wait for him to act. Psalm 27 verse 14 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So we wait for him to act. And right now some people are saying, how long do I have to wait? Maybe you wait long enough for you and I to learn to practice holiness in an evil day. Maybe just long enough to learn to give thanks in all circumstances. Long enough to learn that his grace is sufficient and that his power is made perfect in weakness. John Calvin wrote, it is our duty to wait patiently so long as the vengeance is reserved reserved." In the hand of God until he stretches forth his hand to help us. So we wait. And I want to encourage you that while you wait. If 
you are having those questions about your faith, to ask them. If you have yet to make a decision to surrender to Jesus and to follow him, this is the greatest need that you will ever have. And he's taken care of it. Surrender to him today. At the end of the service, there will be elders here and and I'm sure Stephen's ministers who would love to talk to you about that and talk through those hard questions and talk to you about following Jesus. Maybe you need to commit to a local church. There's a membership seminar coming up on the 18th of September. Maybe you need to join a small church. A small church is a great place where you can grow and you can begin to develop those spiritual disciplines among, alongside other believers who care about you and who want to see you do well, who can pray for you. Pastor Gibbs is going to talk more about that. Ask about a life group. Renew your Bible reading plan. If you never had one, ask for help getting one. Meditate on God's word. Journal your pain. You're going through a hard time, write about it. Put those thoughts, those frustrations, those fears on paper and cry out to the Lord who is king forever for God will arise and he will lift his hand. I want to close with a poem for you. It's called In the Darkness It Is Well. And the credit is, it's an Instagram post on an account called Abby Joe Journals. In the darkness it is well. When the sky turns gold to tell us that the night is soon to fall. When crickets sing of solace, do you feel deep in your soul that this world, though bruised and broken, carries music with each breeze? Hear them whisper, hope is coming. You were made for nights like these. When the glimmer of a firefly cuts through the black of night, does your heart grow warm within you? Does your spirit love the light? Though the darkness oft feels heavy and though the shadows overwhelm, do you hear a soft voice singing in the shadows it is well? For there is an ancient purpose in the darkness of the night. It was never meant to frighten but to point us to the light. And just as gold appears most glorious when compared with worthless dross, so beauty shines the brightest neath the shadow of a cross. But why do we love beauty and why do breezes sing? Why does the softly setting sun restore us, give us peace? Perhaps this broken glory is a hint of what's to come. Perhaps beauty warms our spirits because beauty feels like home. And perhaps home is a person and this person has a name. And the man, beauty incarnate, was the lamb for sinners slain. So maybe golden sunsets and fireflies and wind remind us beauty's coming back. That darkness doesn't win. And perhaps these earthly shadows of the beauty of the king were given that our restless hearts might long to walk with him. He says, take heart, my child. Your name is written in my wounds. I died that restless longing hearts might one day be made new.
God is not far away. He does not hide himself. He was there at the moment of your greatest need. So draw close to him. He will hear you. He will strengthen your heart because our Lord is king forever and ever. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this psalm. I thank you for the honesty, the feelings that are expressed here. And God, I pray that everyone here would know the hope that there is in Jesus, that they would know this king who is Lord forever, that they would find comfort in this beautiful savior that we have. To your glory, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.